and it is a valuable capacity to be preserved for the U.S. Navy to still be able to go anywhere and blow anything up. That is part of the big stick that keeps worldwide peace going. The idea that we need 300 or 400 or 800 little freaking destroyers to go around and patrol like Daredevil in Hell's Kitchen or something, it's nonsense generated exclusively to steal money from the American people. Hello and welcome to the More Freedom Foundation podcast. We are your hosts. I am Murray McElhone. I am in charge of the podcasty bit and I am joined by the wonderful Robert Morris who will be guiding us through the world of geopolitics today. Uh, hey Rory, how's it going? Uh, it's going well. It's been incredibly stormy. We had the electric went out so I managed oh, no. to upload the last podcast uh, and about half an hour later the electric went down but uh, it's back up now. So I'm happy. How are you? Well, I'm happy to hear that. I, you know, I'm just, I'm going through like a weird sort of existential crisis. Like nominally, I'm a politics guy, mm-hmm. right? You know, I care about politics and what, yeah. what's happening in politics. And it's this strange thing where the U.S. 2024 presidential election is ramping up and I couldn't care less. Well, we already know who's going to be the, the two running mates. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly it. We 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 know who the nominees are going to be, uh, and we're just sort of going through the motions. And it's fascinating because usually, you know, at, at the start of the 2020 and the 2016 election cycles, you when the year started, you know, I had all these things I wanted to say set up and and you know positions and da da. And now I'm kind of like well, red string and chalkboards. Yeah, and now I'm kind of like. Well, um, Joe Biden will probably win, but it's really risky to get Who's there. Who's the man that pulled out recently? Oh, Ron DeSantis. Was he uh, the one? Apparently he went to some state and basically went to like every town hall and campaigned really hard. And Trump, that didn't even go to the state, won it. <laughs> that's a that's a dynamic. Uh, I'm not sure if that was uh, Ron DeSantis or Vivek Ramaswamy. I apologize. I'm not sure I pronounced that correctly. Um, I think it was Vivek who both of them really prioritized Iowa and were like, Iowa, that's, and that's a traditional strategy that you would, uh, use in a presidential election year where any of this mattered, um, is you go to a place and you, uh, you go to Iowa specifically. I I believe, uh, don't quote me on this, but I believe Iowa is where Barack Obama, uh, shocked Hillary Clinton in 2008 and uh, dis- derailed her her attempt to be president and eventually got the nomination and won the presidency in 2008. Iowa's where it started. And I don't think Barack Obama was the first person to do that, to really impress in Iowa. And then so it's traditionally the first, the first competition. And certainly Ron DeSantis and uh, Vivek and really anybody else uh, who thought that they were going to have a chance of unseating Donald Trump as the Republican nominee uh, made a big deal out of Iowa and uh, Trump rampaged to victory. This is the, it's normal for an incumbent president to have a pretty clear ride to the presidency. It's only if a tremendously popular and powerful figure in their own party, like uh, Ronald Reagan in 1976 or uh, Edward Kennedy in 1980 against Carter. Uh, So Ronald Reagan uh, sort of kneecapped Gerald Ford in 76, and uh, uh, Edward Kennedy did the same to Jimmy Carter by running against them. Um, it's really only like a dynamic like that where an incumbent president actually has to put up with much of a challenge. Uh, the Democratic Party doesn't seem very interested in, in letting any sort of challenge materialize against Joe Biden, though one would argue there's a pretty good case for that, 
um, due to his age. Uh, that's kind of normal, though, for the incumbent president. What is very, very, very abnormal is for a losing candidate uh, for the presidency uh, to be anointed, you know, just just to, to, to be so completely unchallenged at this point. I, I think if you go back to Teddy Roosevelt, who is one of the, I would say unfairly, one of the most lionized presidents that mm-hmm. the U.S. presidents of the United States has ever had. This is uh, before the World War II guy. This is around the turn of the century, uh, the beginning of the 1900s, Teddy Roosevelt gave up the presidency, decided I'm good, and then he wanted to come back four years later. And the Republican Party was like, nah. Um, so he had to do an independent route. So it's 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 really unprecedented that that a, a... And Teddy Roosevelt, I believe, didn't lose an election. He just chose not to run again. Um, and it's quite unprecedented for a losing candidate to have this amount of power over a political party. But that's where we're at um and it's it it's i can't think of another us election and i've got a pretty i feel like i have decent knowledge at least of 20th century and 21st century elections and there probably will never be one like this ever again well one, one never knows I, yes. I hope there's a lot more president us presidential elections to come so. oh yes yes i just mean th- this is so unique i can't see it happening again it's unique and it's awful. It's it is a um, it, it, if this does become a precedent where you know you you know who the nominees are and everybody hates them. Uh, they are you know I thought that in 2016 you'd never find a more unattractive pair than Jeb Bush, who was expected at the beginning of beginning of 2015 anyway to be the nominee, and Hillary Clinton. I, I don't think you could have found a pair that. U.S. public in general was less interested in. Um, now you've actually got uh, two guys that the U.S. public roundly hates. So this is actually a decaying trend. Do you think it will come down to the economy, which seems to be a lot of people's thinking that it doesn't really matter, you know, what a lot of the political types are saying. Once people feel, you know, the economy's doing okay, they'll just vote for the same again. So good for Joe Biden. Uh, uh, hopefully, um, despite the fact that I openly refer to Joe Biden as Genocide Joe, and I think he's going to burn in hell for what he's done, um, he's still... But could you see Trump uh, changing that course? Um, well, no, but that it, it, you know that's why um, I, you know, as my, if I lived in a state where it mattered, um, I would vote for Joe Biden uh, this fall, despite the fact that I think he's an evil human being, um, because Donald Trump is worse. It, it is. It's just extraordinary that these two roundly hated figures are our only choice. And the, the scary thing is, like, is this a trajectory? Is this something that are, are we, as the American public, just going to have less and less say, less and less choice over who gets to uh, run to be president? Because if you can't, I mean, what kind of democracy is it when you, you've got two parties who are like, here are your choices? Uh, you know, dump it on our plate. I know you hate both. You have to pick one. Be proud that you're voting. You know, it, it's it's it. And that's uh, that was how I felt in 2016. And that was a honestly, you know, Hillary Clinton and Jeb Bush, delightful uh, options compared to uh, Trump and Biden at this point. Would you like some good news involving America? Sure, that sounds nice. Apparently, homicide rate, aka murders, are down across the board from small cities to large cities. So, oh, well, that's nice. Including that's your nice. own New York. Thank you for bringing that up, Rory. That is a really important detail. And it's one of the great pathologies of U.S. media culture is that 
when crime rates are going up, as they absolutely did in the aftermath of COVID, everything went a little crazy. Um, it's constantly being trumpeted at every level of news, from local news to newspapers to um, the major media outlets will tell you constantly about skyrocketing crime. And then the fact that not just this year, but for a number of years since COVID, the fact that crime has been plummeting is something that maybe on, you know, uh, the New York Times will run an article about that nobody shares. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's not um, on the cover. I think only uh, car theft has gone up, but that may be because, um, what was it, Kia and Hyundai, it was found out that they don't have immobilizers. Did you hear about that? Uh, I didn't hear about that, but there's some... Yeah, basically, there. once it got discovered, it was a TikTok trend because it was incredibly easy to steal them, which is, you know, an mm-hmm. immobilizer is just something all cars have around the world. It was just bizarre, mm-hmm. so... I don't know whether that contributed to it, but everything's down across the board except car theft. Yeah, the the, the United States is becoming vastly safer, and unfortunately nobody talks about that. No. Um, and probably most voters think that we're living this, ex- this hellscape of accelerating crime, even though that is emphatically not the case. So today, what I want to talk about is something that actually combines two of those things, the, the sort of declining democracy in the United States and uh, incredible media distortions. And that is the United States Navy. Which is on the way out. The, Ch- the Chinese will be replacing them very shortly. Oh, for sure. Because, of course, <laughs> because you've heard that the Chinese Navy is, is outbuilding us and surely they're going to wipe the U.S. Navy from the seas in, in minutes if we don't give them another $500 billion next year. Um, yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about, Rory, is just this... Uh, specifically, the, the the assumption that I want to interrogate a little bit here today is this idea that the U.S. Navy protects the seas. And I believe that to some degree. I, I do think that U.S. power is important. This was a um, FDR policy, would it have been? What, the U.S. Navy? No, sorry, not the U.S. Navy. The uh, uh. defending world trade via the oceans. I mean, the thing is, I don't think it had to really be a a stated policy. It's been something that's been largely a matter of agreement. I think the last really large-scale piracy, state piracy initiatives before the United States started destroying countries uh, in uh, the 21st century was the famous Shores of Tripoli from the Marine Corps Anthem, the... uh, the North African states in the late 1700s, early 1800s. Uh, Long before the Pax Americana, there was the Pax Britannica. I'm not saying that there haven't been instances of piracy or areas where there there are difficulties, but there really has not been a lot of state predation on on shipping, um, despite the the image uh, that that some writers convey. This is one of my pet peeves with Peter Zeehan. since the the beginning of the 19th century. It's just not something that really happens that much. And this idea that we need a certain number of U.S. naval ships or we're going to fall into Mad Max anarchy on the seas is frankly nonsense. Or it, 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 actually, I can't. That's that's too that's too definitive. I can't say that that's nonsense. What I can say is that there's absolutely no evidence for that idea. <laughs> Uh, in fact, there's the, if you if you compare um, the propaganda that we get with the just the facts on the ground, you'll you'll see that actually there is no direct connection between the number of naval ships and the amount of piracy that's happening. Um, 
if you believe the 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 propagandist, and it's interesting looking into this a little bit, just for you know a couple a half hour of googling here and there, it's very hard to find a good rationale for why you know X number of U.S. Navy ships equals Y number of piracy. Like the, the, it's just a thing that people assert, and because we live in such a post democratic age with a media that's so subservient to pro-military budget um, agendas, we just, they, people just get to assert it. You know, people just get to say, you know, if we don't have 400 more ships, uh, the, the, our, our, this incredible public good that we provide, this incredible positive thing we do to defend the sea lanes won't be possible anymore. According to U.S. Navy assessments, um, we need X hundred more ships or we're not going to be able to patrol as much. And it's not actually um, at all demonstrated that U.S. Navy patrols do much of anything to keep the sea lanes safe in, outside of certain contexts. And I'll get into that. Like the, the, the context, the problem, the piracy problem, the danger of shipping being shut down is not a function of how many ships the Navy does or does not have or w what the U.S. Navy does or does not do. It is a function of ungoverned spaces. The problem of piracy, the problem of shutting down the Red Sea, like what we're seeing right now, is not a problem of inadequate money given to the Pentagon. It is a problem of incredibly stupid choices made by the State Department, the Pentagon, and... U.S. presidential administrations. Um, you need to create an actor like the Houthis. You need to create an actor like the Somali pirates. I'm not saying that the Somali pirates and the Houthis were consciously created by the Pentagon. I'm not that um, paranoid. Yes, I'm the not, Illuminati I'm, didn't just summon them up and give them bundles of money. Exactly. I'm not, I'm not that paranoid. But 100%, these ungoverned spaces that are making piracy or insecurity of the sea lanes at all uh, a, a serious issue, uh, certainly in recent news, is 100% the product of U.S. actions and U.S. policy. So it, yeah, it's a byproduct of their actions. Exactly. And I think we'll, we'll get into, uh, specifically in the Somali and Yemeni context, get into that uh, shortly. But it, it's important that, so there's no, no one demonstrates anywhere the U.S. Navy just sort of asserts when it's budget time that we need all these ships and we're not going to be able to do our vital job of patrolling all the sea lanes anymore. That's not demonstrated at all to me. It is, it's not demonstrated anywhere. Like I, I looked for that rationale and I couldn't find it. I'm sure there's some think tank report that I'm missing, but I highly doubt that there's much that's persuasive there because if there's much that was persuasive there, it would be a rationale that would be, that would be much easier to find. <laughs> See, it's about as are distressingly many things about U.S. foreign policy, geopolitics, um, and Washington, D.C. discussions and U.S. media topics, it's about military procurement. Um, one of the very strange things about the U.S. military and something U.S. military procurement, and I think one of those facts that makes it very, very clear that this has always been political and has very little to do with national security or what national security might actually require is the fact that it is a just a traditional thing uh, that is almost never varied from that each of the brand, the three main military branches, uh, the U.S. Army, the U.S. Air Force, and the U.S. Navy, all get the same amount of money. Mm -hmm. 
regardless if they need it or not. <laughs> exactly. It's just they have to all, and the convoluted ways that all of the branches find ways to insert themselves into conflicts that may or may not have anything to do with them. Um, so, of course, you know, th th there's a rationale. If you've got a war in uh, the Middle East, yes, there's a role for carriers and submarines offshore to be contributing missiles. It's, you know, again, well, it, it is probably the most expensive solution possible when you could easily fire those missiles uh, from bases in Iraq or even from the continental United States. We have missiles that can do that, I believe, um, or from a, a, a fighter jet just flying out from Germany. It's important because all these branches have to get the same amount of money. Yes, yes. Um, it's important all of these branches to be involved in all of these wars no matter how incredibly unfit for purpose they are. So the U.S. budget, the baseline U.S. military budget is about $750 billion now. So that means that the U.S. Navy gets $250 billion. I, I, apparently in, in 2024, the U.S. Navy is expected to get $255 billion. So what you have to do is you have to come up with all kinds of stories that justify the Navy getting that much money. This was especially difficult in the context of all of the incredibly stupid wars that the United States was fighting over the past 20 years were usually about usually about conflicts on the ground, you know, you know, in deserts. You don't usually need a navy for deserts or drone fighting and that sort it's of thing. It's also quite often the American military is very um, Air Force uh, heavy, so quite often the Army will be getting support from the Air Force so the two will work together. Which, as you say, then means the Navy gets left out. Well, but as you pointed out in a couple of podcasts back, the largest, the third or fourth largest air force in the world is the U.S. Navy's Air Force. Um, because it also has its own planes. Because it's important that all of the branches get there, you know, and, and there's not really a logic here other than politics. Uh, so in this context where we were fighting a lot of wars and deserts with a lot of knocking on doors and uh, blowing up weddings with drones, there wasn't much for the Navy to do. So the Navy had to like row out all these justifications. And one of the main ones is we keep the sea lanes clear. And if we don't have, you know, if we only have 250 just, you know, ships instead of 350 ships, we're not going to be able to do the patrolling we need to do, and we're going to fall into bad box anarchy. And that's simply not demonstrated. There was a moment of uh, real danger in Somali piracy that was uh, squelched uh, in the aftermath of the 2006-2009 uh, um, U.S.-sponsored war on Somalia that was largely squelched. You know, that's the, the Captain Phillips. There was a Tom Hanks movie about being hijacked by Somali. I heard the French would do a thing that's uh, incredibly cheap when you're comparing about the huge amounts of money that the mm -hmm. American military has, which is they just get a very good sniper and they would shoot the outboard of the pirate <laughs> boat and then they're just mm -hmm. in the middle of the nowhere, <laughs> which is an incredibly cheap way of doing it. But if you watch that mm. Phillips film, it's like, how much uh. money does America have? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that is that is part of the value of the US Navy is simply demonstrating we have more money and more capability than anybody else and don't F with us. And to be clear, I think that's a good, I think that's a good reason. I think that, I think that actually is a great case for the US Navy. Do you Navy. think there's a sort of a big brother element that just means lots of countries are just like, just play along because we don't want to be destroyed? Yes. 
Uh, and I think that's valuable. Um, I think that a lot of the great peace we've been experiencing uh, since World War II is coercion. It is the United States being more powerful and more scary than anybody else. I believe in that. I do believe there is value to that. But that doesn't mean we need to spend $250 billion on it. We don't need to spend, and because the point of this, 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 oh no, we must, oh, sorry, I was saying, okay, so in the aftermath of the uh, U.S.-sponsored Ethiopian invasion of Somalia in 2006, um, Somali piracy, a failed invasion, to be clear, uh, the Ethiopians pulled out in 2009, leaving, you know, sending Somalia straight back into the chaos that uh, it, had, it had famously been, been in in the Black Hawk Down uh, days. There was a Somali piracy issue that was largely crushed uh, by multilateral forces. It'd be nice if it was more French sniper bullets. Why use a $3 bullet when you can uh, send a $20 million destroyer uh, to handle it? Prior to the uh, Houthi dynamic, the Yemeni government's deciding to blockade, frankly, rather heroically deciding to blockade uh, Red Sea traffic to stop a genocide in Palestine. Before that dynamic, there was like no piracy. I researched this a number of years back and there was some kind of industry association that talked about, and it was like something like 15 acts of piracy a year. And then if you looked into the details, there was like one actual hijacking of a small ship. Um, and like these acts of piracy or whatnot were like literally somebody taking a pot shot at a ship and nothing uh, nothing Which coming of it. kind of outstanding at how little there is. Well, because there's simply not, there isn't the incentive there. And I do think that the U.S. Navy plays a role in this. But the role that the U.S. Navy plays is not like, you know, Superman or Batman roaming the city streets looking for evil. Um, no, what it is is the threat of massive power and destruction should you be uh, so silly as to assume that you can attack us. That, that I do believe there is value to. Um, but this idea that we need a certain number of ships to go out and, and patrol the sea lanes is, it, you know, can't say it's definitely wrong. I'm just saying there's no evidence for it anywhere. And if, if the, the incentives are all about just... It's already saturated. It's already achieving its main goal. So just pouring in more money isn't really helping it. Well, exactly. And, and during that period after the Somali piracy, where piracy had been essentially eradicated everywhere, um, that's when you began to have this idea that, oh, we need more ships or that we're all going to fall into chaos. And it's just, just utterly unchallenged. It's just part of the mental furniture of your sort of uh, random opinion columnists. When and if you spent, it, what, a tenth of one year's Navy budget on like helping these regions, maybe they're less likely to do insane things because it is just insanity what they're doing, like going up to a giant cargo ship in essentially a speedboat. I think that's, that, that's, a, good, that's a good segue to actually pointing out the incredibly straightforward role that the United States has played in creating these ungoverned spaces in creating these problem areas. Uh, Somalia is the, I guess, the archetypal ungoverned space. Uh, my understanding now is it has... Well, there's Somaliland, which is also controversial, but it's somewhat a country that can function. And it feels like the rest of the world would like them to fix all of that region. And they're like, can't we just be our own thing? <laughs> Well, I think, so, to be clear, Somalia is still fighting an ongoing uh, insurgency conflict against uh, al-Shabaab. I mean, it is, it is not by no means 
out of the woods uh, or an at peace or a safe or secure country. But it's not the sort of free-for-all that was immortalized in uh, Black Hawk Down, the the book and uh, action film, uh, where, you know, Mogadishu was just this, this you know, incredibly violent, you know, scary horror show or what have you. That that hasn't always been the case uh, of Somalia, even though people people seem to envision it that way. The reason Somalia is as screwed as it is, is that for decades during the Cold War, uh, it was controlled by a U.S.-sponsored dictator. I think this is actually a good thing. It's a very similar story to the Congo. Two of the most effed-up places in Africa are places that were unfortunate enough to have a, a very solid U.S.-sponsored dictators for decades of the Cold War. The first Bush administration made what I believe to have been the right choice. Uh, this choice probably should have come with a little more political thought and a lot more money, considering how culpable we are for how backwards and corrupt and ineffective the Somalian and Congolese governments were. But by withdrawing the support for those dictators, we rightly stopped supporting some pretty evil guys. Unfortunately, in Somalia's case and also in Congo's case, uh, what happened after we withdrew support for those dictators is the countries really, really fell apart and became at the mercy, in Congo's case, of more powerful regional actors. And in Somalia's case, uh, unfortunately, became the victim of the United States. In the 1990s, that famous Black Hawk Down incident where a couple dozen, you or was it just it was 19 sticks in my head? I can't remember the exact, but it was very traumatizing in the 1990s. A bunch of U.S. soldiers were killed during a humanitarian effort in Somalia. I suppose the first Bush administration actually attempting to do the right thing and helping Somalia recover from the chaos that followed the dictator we had supported for decades. Then we rapidly pulled out and Somalia experienced a solid decade or so of chaos. What happened was, eventually, as will happen, if a region of chaos is left alone, it managed to develop new form of government. Um, it was the, known as, I don't know a t tremendous amount about this, but this was the Islamic courts system or regime, or it was a grouping of, yes, absolutely very serious uh, fundamentalist uh, Islamic groups that managed to take power and restore order in Somalia. Um, and finally, that that horrific chaos that Somalia had experienced for 10, 15 years, you know, I, I don't I, I do think that the United States made the right decision in stopping their support for the Somali dictator after which Somalia fell apart. I don't I'm not angry at my government for that. What I am angry at my government for is once the Islamic courts took control of Somalia and began to and established a functioning state again. The Bush administration decided that mm -mm -mm, these guys are a little too fundamentalist and don't say enough bad things about Al-Qaeda, so we're going to have to destroy them. So in 2006, we supported uh, Ethiopia, a country we'll talk about uh, at length in our next episode, in yeah, next 10, supported Ethiopia in its invasion of Somalia that lasted from 2006 to 2009 and was a complete failure. Ethiopia was going to come in there, and it did crush the Islamic courts. What happened to the Islamic courts is that 
After being pushed out of power by the massively more powerful on paper Ethiopian military with the support of the world hegemon, the United States, is that it went out into the sticks and then it curdled into Al-Shabaab, which is one of the nastiest terrorist organizations on the planet. And then, and really the story ever since, in the 15 years since, is Somalia trying desperately to put itself back together um, in the face of this Al-Shabaab insurgency, and that has led to a great deal of chaos. That chaos has led to an ungoverned space, which was the main piracy problem of the first decade of first and kind of second decade of the century. So it's the ungoverned spaces, it's U.S. policies to destroy governments that yield the kind of instability that the U.S. Navy can then turn around and say, oh, look at all this instability. You need us. You need us. We're important. Um, and there's a lot of that, uh, that, that sort of dynamic in the way that defense budgets grow. Um, and it is fundamentally very maligned. I do not believe it is conscious in most cases. I believe that most people in the U.S. Navy, most people living, working in the national security infrastructure really believe they're doing the best, but there's a severe deficit in, in big picture thinking, in pointing out that, yeah, it's, it's compelling and Captain Phillips was a fun movie and uh, or what have you. Um, and it's interesting thinking about piracy, but there's not a lot of stepping back and being like, how exactly did U.S. policies contribute to? But just, does this just show just how powerful America is that it can constantly fail and destroy regions and then it inadvertently helps itself 20 years later? Well, yeah, yeah. Well, that's, I think that's one of my fundamental critiques, uh, Rory, is that the destruction is the point. Um, the United States is incredibly invested in peace and prosperity in wealthy places. Um, I've talked about the way that Turkey's kind of confusing because there are elements in the U.S. government in Washington, D.C. that have for a decade now. Uh, Brett McGurk, we, we've been talking about that. Turkey right now is not an asset to NATO. Um, for a decade now, have been talking about like, let us at Turkey. They've got a nasty strongman. Let's do it. And I think there's just enough people in Washington, D.C. who are like, you know, Turkey's GDP is just a little bit too high. Like Ford makes a lot of money in Turkey. McDonald's makes a lot of money in Turkey. And, and it's not a sacrifice zone. But we have a lot of the U.S. government that is captured by these military companies, these, these military companies, these military consultancies, uh, these just wide, this large ecosystem of people that thrive on chaos. And if there isn't chaos and destruction in the world, uh, these folks have nothing to do. Uh, so we end up sponsoring a lot of chaos and destruction. Like it, it is, it is, I do think that, uh, it was good for us to step out of Somalia and allow it to fall into chaos in the 1990s. I do. And I think it is absolutely reprehensible, abhorrent, evil that we jumped back in in 2006 as soon as it had stabilized to break it again. Um, you know, it, it's interesting because it's, I was thinking about that. That's kind of like a, it's kind of like an Obama or Biden style destruction of a country. And people don't even add it to the list of nasty things that George W. Bush did because there's such a long list. Yeah, it's terrifying. But it, it's, uh, yeah, so that, that, that kind of uh, chaos is something that Washington, D.C. thrives upon. 
So that's Somali piracy, the the first big uh, justification for uh, U.S. Navy uh, operations uh, or, or this need for more and more and more and more ships. And now we have the Red Sea, which is, to be clear, I, now that this is a lot like Russia's invasion of Ukraine, now that U.S. policy has created a rogue actor that um, has started doing some very out-of-bound stuff, uh, like invading your neighbor or shutting down all shipping. I mean, to be clear, I think the Houthis have vastly more moral justification for what they're doing than uh, the Russians do. But, but again, they are sort of attacking, you know, innocent shipping or what have you, uh, and they should be stopped. So I'm not, I'm not like, oh, well, you know, the Houthis are are heroes and they should be allowed to do what they're doing. Um, but also with the Ukraine example, like we don't look back to the coup that the United States sponsored in 2014 that launched the whole instability between Russia and Ukraine. Like we don't, we don't, we don't play the tape back. And what I'd like to do now is sort of play the tape back a bit with Yemen and the Houthis, because now, yes, that the Houthis are, I do not believe we should be bombing Yemen. I think it was Nick Brumfield uh, is an analyst, a Yemen analyst on Twitter and Blue Sky, uh, made a sort of great, divided this up pretty well. The U.S. operations have been divided up as well. There's sort of Operation Genocide Guardian, sorry, <laughs> Operation Pen, uh, Prosperity Guardian, um, which is about and I think does have a little more international buy-in, which is about defending ships. That's that's good. That's good. And then there's Operation Genocide Archer, um, or something Archer or whatever, um, that is about attacking Yemen. And I think that is stupid. Um, if you know anything about the Houthis, if you've paid any attention to my coverage of Yemen, I've got like 25 videos on this, the, the war in Yemen over the past six or seven years, um, and how pointless and exactly what the Houthis want the bombing of Yemen is. So it, it, it should be, it, you know, there were 10 Houthis that were killed in and while uh, by the U.S. Navy as the Houthis were attempting to uh, hijack a ship um, at some point in recent weeks. And while I think those Houthis may be going to heaven uh, for trying to defend the Palestinians from, you know, they may be good people, I think they should have been killed. You should not, you should not be derailing commerce. That is a very good use of the U.S. Navy. I do not believe that bombing, uh, the whole-scale bombing of Yemen that we're now engaging in and are probably going to continue escalating has has any value. Um, I think that's just exactly what the Houthis want. But so, sorry, to back up, um, the Houthis are the government of Yemen. Um, we perhaps had this conversation before uh, on here. It's absurd that uh, the, the degree of ignorance about Yemen uh, that I've seen revealed uh, as as the Houthis and you know Yemen has sort of put itself into the center of discourse by blocking Red Sea traffic is is pretty pretty extreme because the Houthis it's just it's got to, I don't know if it's actually in the Associated Press New York Times BBC style books to say that they are an Iranian sponsored militia like the Houthis certainly get some weapons from Iran. Um, but they are the government of Yemen. And what happened in 2014 was that the Houthis, in concert with an older dictator of Yemen, took over all of Yemen. They were at the point where they were about to take over Aden, uh, the last big city in the south, traditionally as far away from the, the Houthi heartland. What happened in 2014 and in 2015 was a civil war in Yemen that the Houthis won.
What happened then was the Saudis, uh, under the very early uh, and mistaken stewardship of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, before he was a Crown Prince, he was merely the defense minister at that point, decided in 2015 as a sort of trade, uh, the Obama administration decided to give Saudi Arabia uh, this war that MBS wanted uh, in return for their acquiescence in the signature of the Iran nuclear deal. It's all a very long time ago now. Um, but he, that's a good point. That This was a very long time ago. Ten years ago, the Houthis took control of Yemen. And they're still being described as a Iranian-sponsored militia because the Saudis undertook a really horrific war, reckoned to have killed around 400,000 Yemeni uh, folks with an emphasis on children. Before Gaza, this was described by the United Nations for years as the the worst humanitarian crisis in, in the world. Um, so the Saudis uh, basically got to do what Putin was doing to Ukraine. It was an invasion of their their poorer neighbor to, uh, uh, and it was with complete U.S. sponsorship. It was with U.S. Air Force planes refueling Saudi planes. It was with U.S. target selection. Uh, U Saudi planes don't run without uh, U.S. contractors funded well, and fueling and putting them together. Thing to point out with the likes of Saudi Arabia is it has shockingly little of its own defense uh, capability, as in it doesn't have. It doesn't make anything. Like nearly yep. every other country that even buys a lot from America will say make their own tanks or bullets and have its own weird calibers. It seems to be Saudi Arabia does nothing and buys in everything. And these aircraft require a huge amount of a staff to just keep them uh, basically running. So that's just mostly a, like I sort of see it as like an American pit crew. Which is, you know, they just throw over the money and the Americans do all the work. And yes, they might be, you know, native pilots and have their wee flags on it. But they seem to do nothing of their own. Like we've seen with this Ukrainian war, how much Ukraine developed themselves <laughs> and how much they're able to implement their own technologies with the help of America. But Saudi Arabia does nothing. <laughs> yep. Um, and I think we've got plenty of U.S. Congress people uh, who it was one of those rare... Uh, war on terror uh, excesses that was just so egregious that even U.S. Congress people made it their uh, crusade to stop stop this facilitating this Saudi invasion. By 2019, the Saudis had lost. Uh, so we've actually got this weird dynamic where the Saudis are now, uh, it's kind of reversed. The United States wants to bomb Yemen and wants to destroy the Houthis and uh, Saudi Arabia is saying, hey, you know what? Just lay off. It's fine. Just just back off, which is a very well, strange... Well, because Saudi Arabia is the one that could ultimately lose here, while America could just move its boats and do something else. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. exactly. But but I think the key thing here is that the Houthis are, are an actor that has been brutalized to the extent like what the Houthis are today is very different from what the Houthis were in 2014, they were working with Saleh, who was the, the dictator who had run the place. They ended up killing Saleh in 2017 uh, during, this, during this Saudi invasion. And the Houthis are infinitely more radicalized because of this U.S.-supported Saudi invasion. And they're infinitely closer to Iran that is providing a lot of the missiles that they're able to use to do this. Um, and also, the whole impetus, the Houthis have had the ability not with the ballistic missiles or what have you, but have had the ability to use attacking ships. Drones, I guess, weren't as much of a 
factor 10 years ago as they are today, but they've had the ability, certainly for five years, to stop traffic or to hamper uh, traffic in the Red Sea to the extent that they have. But they never did. In fact, they were very careful to not to, because even when they were being blockaded by Saudi Arabia, the United States, and the United Kingdom, um, even when uh, everybody was trying to destroy them, they were invested, still invested in the legitimacy of not being a terror organization and and not, you know, uh, giving the U.S. an excuse to double down on their support for the Saudis, which was always pretty fraught. And it's the U.S. Uh, support of the ongoing uh, destruction and ethnic cleansing in Gaza, by U.N. definitions, definitely genocide in Gaza, um, that uh, the United States is supporting, that convinced the Houthis that they could have win. And don't get me wrong, make no mistake, the Houthis are absolutely winning here um, in terms of domestic politics, in terms of international politics. They've created this huge sort of, uh, you know, protest, you could call it. And mm-hmm. from what I can tell, the only casualties on, I guess, the the shipping lane side is two U.S. Navy SEALs. So no, like, oh. any, and nobody in charge of any boats being killed. Like, it's it's mad how incredibly violent it is, but yet nobody's really been killed while the Americans have killed um, civilians on Easily the other dozens. side. Easily dozens of people at this point. Uh, we don't know uh, because the, the, we're talking about at least eight separate attacks. Uh, one of the attacks involving 60 different strikes in Yemen. And to be clear, those two Navy SEALs that died, died in the process of attempting to hijack um, a, an Iranian ship that was uh, bringing weapons to uh, Yemen. So in fact, I mean, and that, that's another dynamic we haven't touched on at all. Most of the piracy that's done in the world is done by the U.S. Navy. Um, a hundred percent. I mean, that's, there's no question. It kind of reminds me of, uh, back in the day, a lot of the pirates were essentially, um, under the British coin. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it's a a modern version of that. Whoever rules the seas today is controlling most piracy. Oh, there is a degree of, uh, the United States license is a pretty disgusting degree of sort of legal privateering. It's not really, it's not ships out there, but we do allow private actors to sue, other countries. So there's all kinds of absurd results that we've seen where, you know, the the Sudanese had, because they hosted Osama bin Laden for six months in the, in the 90s, had to give the 9-11 families hundreds of millions of dollars. That's a completely different topic we don't need to go into. Um, But uh, the, no, the United States does outright piracy. We steal a lot of Iranian oil um, this is not this is not something that is justified by any United Nations or international law dynamics. The United States just goes and steals stuff. Um, the Houthis are the government. Because it can. Yeah, the Houthis <laughs> are the government of Yemen, um, and we hijack uh, weapons deliveries from Iran, a sovereign country, to the Houthis, a sovereign country. Uh, we hijack Iranian deliveries of oil. It was there were there were multilateral sanctions. I believe there still are to some degree multilateral sanctions against Iran, but those have no like th- those aren't legal. That's just the U.S. says so, um, and that's that's we the U.S. Navy is the greatest source of piracy. Um, obviously, that's a, that's like a philosophical question at this point, um, but not exactly the main message I want to deliver today is that the U.S. Navy does not do does not keep the sea lanes safe. U.S. military power, U.S. political decisions make the sea lanes less safe. Let me, let me 
caveat that U.S. military power, I think, and I've, we've said a couple times during this episode, does keep the world safer because it keeps people in line. You don't need a certain amount of ships to do that. Um, and I think what we're seeing and well, with... Uh, America has reached that level of ships, so it doesn't need more of them to implement that policy. Exactly. And another really important dynamic here is tech cost demands. What uh, what a the 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 demand the cost you need to pay for constantly developing uh, uh, technologies because it's a race because you're fighting you you know you you people you know the U.S. Chinese and Russian militaries are are all focused with eagle eyes on what's happening in Ukraine on what's happening in Gaza on what's happening and saying what works does this work does this dr- drone combination work. Does this, that's a hundred percent true. And especially another dynamic we haven't gotten into is the fundamental vulnerability of surface ships. Like the, 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 you know, the last time a surface ship was in a real war, uh, was in the 1940s and missile technology has developed a good deal since (laughs) to say the least, as the Russian Navy is described has discovered over and over again in the black sea. Um, so there's some question as to whether any of this stuff is of any use. But if you are going to somehow uh, continue to perpetuate what I believe to be the fiction that uh, aircraft carriers or destroyers or any kind of surface ship is of any use in any real war, you need to continually develop technology systems. Uh, The Aegis radar systems, I never pretend to be a a military tech expert, uh, but th- there's this special kinds of weapons and countermeasures and how do you deal with missiles and hypersonic missiles and this thing. And, this, da, 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 da. and it's all really esoteric pretend stuff. Nobody knows anything. But what we do know is that it is that what drives these uh, spiraling costs, these spiraling technology costs, these keeping up with the Joneses, keeping up with the demands of every new conflict what drives these costs is war. It is war that gives away our secrets. It is war, a hundred percent. This is a little bit of sort of hawkish sounding paranoia that, uh, uh, that is a hundred percent accurate. The Chinese are sitting in their base in Djibouti. The only really overseas base they have is in Djibouti that I think the United States allowed in under the, um, Context of oh the Chinese are going to help us against the Somali pirates we created. So but also, the yeah, Djibouti is a, a very inter- there's a lot of international bases there, so it's a very unique place. It is it is a very strange place, but the the Chinese military folks in Djibouti, what they've been doing for you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they've doubled the resources, quadrupled the resources of people they have there to carefully watch and analyze and surveil exactly what systems. Um, the U.S. Navy's Operation Genocide Guardian are, are using, like what, what, how, you know, how did this destroyer blow up all of those Yemeni missiles that that fired at it, and how can we learn that? I mean, that's that right there. That Chinese knowledge that's being developed is a rationale for another hundred billion dollars of we've gotta we've gotta invest in this technology to figure out, you know, how to keep our surface ships safe from the Chinese. So. Every bit of war that the U.S. creates creates exponential demands in technology uh, development. 
because any secrets, any any details of how these systems work that are vital to be mystifying or 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 worrisome to the Chinese in the the first days of a of a fight over Taiwan are now becoming known. So they've got to all change. And that's that's how war works. And that's incredibly damaging to US national security, incredibly damaging to the US's ability to browbeat everybody else and keep them uh, scared. But that's that's what we're doing. And again, this is a choice. The Houthis were a choice that U.S. policymakers make. Backing up uh, this genocide in Palestine um, is a choice that policymakers make. And we are pissing away to the... I don't personally believe that any U.S. Navy surface ship will survive day two of a fight uh, by Taiwan. But to the extent that they have any capability to do so, we're pissing it away to defend a sort of right-wing ethnostate that is trying, in fact, to get the other party elected in the United States, mm-hmm. um, as has been pointed out by a couple of good tweets that I was just paraphrasing there. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's a pretty dull all around, frankly. And I, I just, the amount of, or, or the complete lack of serious analysis of what we're doing here and how actually the military hyperactivity um, is so much more damaging to U.S. national security and legitimate national interests than any of the rationales for more more spending. But we've got to get that budget up to a trillion. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think it's already there because I think you can't really count the true military budget without including the fact that we're paying all the debt service for uh, Bush and Obama's war on terror. Um, so the, all the interest payments we're paying that, that, and then I think the, I'm not sure if the VA is, com- uh, the veterans affairs administration that, uh, rightly it's one of the few, and of course it's being undermined right now by Republicans and Democrats who are trying to privatize it, but the veterans, uh, administration does provide healthcare to our, uh, to our veterans. Um, and that is in, you know, hundreds, I don't know, how many tens of billions of dollars a year, or hundreds of billions of dollars a year that is because of all the people that were maimed in Iraq and Afghanistan. Is stranger trying to privatize it? I thought something like that would be like hallowed ground. No, nothing's hallowed ground. They're, they're uh, Medicare, uh, the actual, um, we do over the age of 65, the United States does provide medical care uh, for its citizens. Uh, it is one of the best run institutions in the country uh it, it's it's it functions it works it, it somehow makes it saved you know my mom's life in recent years it it, it, it works um and it's being destroyed uh through a program called medicare advantage uh which is you yeah like you basically run and it it's you run um sort of telemarketing ads to it's called medicare advantage and basically it slices it away and gives it to insurance companies that provide worse coverage than the government does and overbill the government in in return. Um, so that's Medicare advantage for you. But anyway, sorry, that's a we were talking about the US Navy. Um and uh really what a um we need a US Navy. It is uh tremendous you had mentioned earlier just the like how much money does the United States have? Oh yeah, it's and outstanding. In, and in part, the, 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 the ability we have, the technical ability we have, oh gosh, we didn't even get into the absolute, this is probably one of the things that annoys me the most, is 
China's got more ships yes. than the United States does now. <laughs> and it's such an idiotic talking point because if you drill down to one, you know, drill down, look into this to any extent, it is one of the most farcical, um, it's a lie. It, it is it is fundamentally, it is a, it is a lie that- It's one of those things that's technically true, but the US Navy displaces twice as much water. So it just yes. means they have much yeah. bigger boats. And yes. also, well, I can totally understand a lot of the Chinese um, boats are essentially like um, patrol uh, vessels because it does have a large coastline. And from China's perspective, I could see them being terrified of, say, um, Korea and uh, Japan being given free reign, similar to what we've seen um, Israel being given and America just making sure that everything's taken over. Like I could see China being genuinely terrified of such an event. So it's definitely much more of a, a defensive navy. Well, it's a coast guard. Yeah, it, it, it's it's a coast guard. Um, and what what's interesting is that the when you do that math, they never include the hundred odd uh, ships in the United States Coast Guard um, as being part of the navy because that too is a separate service. It's a separate service that is now somewhat uh, inexplicably under the uh, Department of Homeland Security. But the United States Coast Guard. And this is a key distinction I've made many times. The United States Coast Guard, I believe, has more blue water capacity than the uh, Chinese Navy, like the Chinese, well, what's the whole Chinese Navy. Because I think in World mm -hmm. War II in America, you know, was tr at a stretch, it was, you know, trying. The Coast Guard was involved in the likes of D-Day. So when, you know, things come down to it, you can have the Coast Guard to throw its ships across the whole world. And that's not even being included. <laughs> yeah. No, the Coast Guard does has uh, uh, I can't recall the details, but it, it is not limited to the U.S. coasts. Um, now, of course, and to be clear, if the United States Navy attempted to attack the, and this isn't just my my sneaking suspicion that, frankly, you know, surface ships have been useless since the mid 1960s um, due to missile technology. But this is like the I think the official estimation is that the entire U.S. Navy, all of our aircraft carriers at once, could attempt to you know, uh, a landing on China and they'd all be sunk, um, 100%. Like, you know, within 100 miles of the Chinese coast, there is, it is a no-go zone uh, for the U.S. Navy in a real military context because of missile technology, because of the no doubt thousands, if not millions, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of missiles that China has um, along its coastline. Um, and in that context, then yes, I mean, China's ships are more important or whatever. If you get to, I don't know, um, the other side of Taiwan, well, probably a little further than the other side of Taiwan, if you get to the Philippines, if you get to the Philippines, I'm pretty sure the U.S. Coast Guard could beat the crap out of the entire Chinese Navy. Um, and, if you get, and if you get to Australia, 100%. Mm. Oh, yeah, so many um, choke points. The, the, like the, and it is tremendously impressive, and it is a valuable capacity to be preserved for the U.S. Navy to still be able to go anywhere and blow anything up. That is part of the big stick that keeps worldwide peace going. The idea that we need 300 or 400 or 800 little freaking destroyers to go around and patrol like Daredevil and Hell's Kitchen or something, it's nonsense generated exclusively to steal money from the American people. So, no. So thank you for that lovely thought. The U.S. Navy is just expanding and expanding and reaping the benefits of uh, failed states created by its own government 20 years mm -hmm. prior. <laughs> <laughs>
Indeed. So we'll catch you next time to talk about some of those failed states. Indeed, indeed. The More Freedom Foundation is also available on YouTube and TikTok. Rob's Twitter is RobOLaw, and he's also written a book called Avoiding the British Empire, What It Was and How the US Can Do Better, and music provided by Kevin MacLeod.